Greeting is just too fun. Too much fun to greet. I want to share with you this morning uh, from Ephesians chapter 5. It's a picture of something that we're going to look at and expand upon in the sermon later on. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes and gives us a picture of marriage and its meaning and its purpose. And it's something we're going to expand on as well as those of you who are single. We're going to be looking at what God's Word tells us about how we're to live in this world as both married and single people. But one of the things that connects together marriage and God's intended purpose is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, when Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one had ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God is so glorious and so gracious towards us and so desirous that we trust in him and have a relationship with him that he actually gives us pictures throughout the scriptures of his relationship to us and how he loves us. And, and the biggest picture God has given us in human relationships is the relationships between a husband and a wife. That that relationship would be a picture. It would show and demonstrate the gospel. That in the relationship between a husband and a wife, God would show how much Christ loves us. And so in the end, what we do in this day-to-day -day life is not insignificant. And the relationships we have among each other are not insignificant. But everything we do, everything we have is a communication of the gospel, of how good God is to us, how much he loves us, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And so what I want to look at this morning as we study further, after we sing, is I want to give us a picture of the gift of God to us, whether we are married or whether we're single that God has given us great gifts for his glory. And I pray that everything we have and everything we see will cause us to worship him above all things. And so this morning, let's prepare our hearts to sing. Let's get ready to give God glory for the fact that everything from his hand is a gracious gift to us. Would you pray with me, Lord? I ask you to be with us this morning. Lord, that as we deal with more difficult topics from your word, I pray, God, you'd help us to see that everything we have, every gift you've given us is for a purpose, God. That you don't just act accidentally, God, but you are purposeful in all your ways. And so, Lord, I pray this morning you'll help us to see the beauty of Jesus. I pray that you'll help us to see that even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, God, you are supremely faithful. And God, we can't imagine what this looks like. It's hard for us to relate to. But God, we are so grateful that even though you look down on us and you see unfaithful people many times, you, God, have shown your unbelievable devotion to us and faithfulness to us. And God, we just cannot thank you enough for the love you have displayed. And so God, help us to not treat our relationships lightly. God, help us to treat our bodies with purpose 
And God, I pray everything we do as Christians will point a lost and dying world to the sufficiency of Jesus. Lord, may we love you more than anything else. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we continue to walk through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and we continue to walk through some difficult topics. I'm very thankful for those of you who came back from last week, and today we still continue along some of those difficult veins, but in the end, what I have for us this morning, what I believe God shares with us this morning is the gifts of God seen in both marriage and in singleness and how we are to live in the midst of this world as Christians. So is this going to be an uncomfortable topic? Yeah. Is it Why? Because it's attached to last week and we're still talking in that same vein. But in the end, what I want to show you this morning, hopefully, is God's words to us about how we are to live in faithfulness whether we are married or whether we are unmarried. And in the end, God has shown us in his word that both of these are gifts from him. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be starting in verse 1 and we're going to go to verse 16. If you are physically able, would you stand with me this morning in honor of God's word as we read it? And we're going to ask God for grace to be able to learn and to hear from him. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because you lack because your lack of self-control. Verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were I as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 
For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Would you pray with me this morning? God, these are some difficult verses, and I ask you to help give guidance to us and wisdom to me in particular as I teach. Lord, I pray for the different hearts that are in this room. Some have come in here excited. Some have come in here because someone made them come. Some are sorrowful. Some are struggling through sin. God, I pray whatever our hearts are in this moment, God, that you would use your word, God, to to heal and to free and to convict and to point us once again to Jesus and his all-sufficiency. And God, we are thankful in this room that Though all of us are sinners, you are a great Savior. And God, you don't just forgive us once, but you continue to forgive. And Lord, that just amazes us. As unworthy, unfaithful people, it just amazes us. But God, we are truly grateful. Help us, God, to walk in holiness. God, help us not to abuse this gift of grace you've given us but instead to cherish it and to live each day to give you the glory you deserve for having given us your gifts of grace. Lord, I do thank you that we are not the only church in this community that preaches the gospel. God, I'm thankful there are many churches that teach the truth of who Jesus is and that he came and died for sinners. And Lord, I pray for them I pray in particular for Matt Moore, pastor of Cedarview. I pray, Lord, that you'll help him as he preaches this morning, God, to have boldness and to not be ashamed of your good news. God, I pray many will come to Christ as a result. Lord, I pray for my brother Wade Humphreys at Longview Point. I pray, Lord, that you'll help him as he preaches, God, to love your word and to love you more than the applause of men. And God, I pray for my friend Mike Leake. First Baptist Church, Marionville, Missouri. I pray, Lord, that as he preaches, God, you would give him boldness and help him to rest in your truth, God, and in your power to save. And Lord, I pray for me. I pray, Lord, that you will make me a vessel for you. Lord, that I will say nothing but what you want me to say. And Lord, that I will handle your word with care. Lord, forgive me of my sin and cause me, Lord, to love you more. God, I pray that you will save our children this morning too. God, I pray that you will bring children to this church and I pray you'll save them. God, I pray you'll bring families to our our midst. God, that people might hear the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we will be active in our community sharing the good news of Christ. God, use us. Let us not wait for some special day. Let us go now and tell people about Jesus. And God, may we trust you that as we're faithful to you and to your word, you will save souls. So God, I ask you to do it right now. Lord, we are so grateful for you. And God, we ask you to use your word. God, to show us once again that Jesus should be our treasure. May you receive all glory and honor. We ask it all in your precious name. Amen. Would you be seated for a moment? Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is marked by a lot of different sin. It's marked by division. It's marked by uh, sexual immorality in the church. It's marked by uh, issues with relationships. 
And Paul has been addressing these needs as he's gone through. But now, even in chapter 7, he begins to get very specific about addressing the questions that apparently the church sent to him in a letter they wrote. The church had many questions for Paul, who administered there, helped found the church, start the church in Corinth. And after he left, there were many things that arose that they just didn't know how to move forward on or, or needed guidance on. And so they wrote a letter to Paul to say, Paul, would you answer these questions for us? And in chapter 7, we see Paul addressing one of those questions directly. Now, he's been building for this the entire time he's been writing to them. He deals with the part last week about sexual immorality, about how we use our bodies as temples, right? They're temples of God. They, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so what we do with our bodies matter, which means that uh, casual sex is not something that God purposes. And it's not something that even exists, that everything we do with our bodies is purposeful. And sex in particular is something that is very uh, very intimate, and there is a unity behind it that many times we as a culture do not see nor lend weight to. He continues in that because what appears to happen is there is a, an objection of some type or a question that arose in the church about, about how we are to progress as Christians in the midst of a uh, sex um, in rich culture, a place where sex infuses everything. We are immersed in it. It is everything we look at and are a part of. And so in the end, what we see is Paul's address to married and unmarried people on how to live in this dark world. And can I tell you, the problems they're dealing with in the first century are not unlike the problems that we look at today. Imagine that in their day, they also might have had a low view of marriage in their time. And in fact, we see that today, don't we? Uh, marriages have become self-serving, right? They, they're all about what we can get for ourselves. We'll use other people to get whatever we want. And as a result, you see the rate of divorce is skyrocketing. The rate of cohabitation, people living together who aren't married is high. Ma you see marriage difficulties, right? That's nothing new. And, and to be honest with you, we know this is an epidemic because how many of us could look at uh, our families and say that they have not in some way been racked by absolute significant brokenness in some form or fashion? Has anybody seen just the, the perfect marriage laid out before them? Probably not. Because even as great as our parents were, they had flaws too. And as great as we've seen marriages around us, they are flawed and broken, and many of us experience significant brokenness in the midst of those relationships. So what are we to do? Notice in verse 1 what arises in this discussion. He says in verse 1, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to, uh, not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do you notice that? It begins and ends with quotation marks. Paul's now going to address one of the things they sent him in the letter they wrote to him. And apparently there are some people in Corinth who said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Case closed. Right? We're talking about sexual morality, right? We're talking, he's already addressed the fact that there is, sex is rampant and it's being used in casual ways, in ways that God never intended. And instead, people are using their bodies for whatever purpose they wish instead of seeing that God has created everything for a purpose, including sex. So that's one end of the spectrum, which is it doesn't matter what we do. We're saved, right? We're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. doesn't really matter. The opposite side of the group says, well, listen, if sexual immorality is such a problem, you know what we should do? 
Just not have sex. Case closed. Some people might even be saying it's just better not to get married at all. Just don't be married and don't have sex, and there you have no problems. That's not true. But it's the knee-jerk reaction to the rampant sexual immorality going on that some say a man should not have sexual relations with a woman ever under any circumstance. You get the two ends of the spectrum? Now, here's the problem. They have an erroneous view of God's graciousness to them. And it's seen in a certain spot. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, but... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So here, Paul is laying out that marriage is not something to be avoided because of all the sexual immorality and issues that go into it. Marriage is not something to be avoided. In fact, he says that marriage is actually a gift of God's grace to people. He says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Yay! God loves us enough to know that sometimes many of us are going to fall into sexual immorality if left to ourselves. Do I need to walk you back through your teenage years? Anybody want to go there? No? Anybody, anybody want to go through your mid-20s? Right? Whatever it is for you? No. Right? There's, there's an, a predisposition, a lure to, to, to sexual immorality. And one of the things God has done is he's given a great gift to men and women who might be tempted to sexual immorality. He gives the gift of marriage. Now, this does not mean that this is the only reason marriage exists. All right? I want you to understand that. But what this does tell us is who marriage is designed for. Marriage is designed for those who might be lured into sexual temptation, into sexual morality. Boy, it's quiet in here. <laughs> Y'all much rather just stay home, right? Could have, could have gone without hearing this this morning. But I want to point you out. I want to point something out to you. There were those saying we shouldn't be married at all. We shouldn't have sexual relationships at all. And Paul says, you're actually missing the gift of God. Because those who would be tempted into sexual immorality, God has given marriage as a gift to them. Yay, God. Because for those in this room who might struggle with sexual immorality, those in the room who might be tempted, I'll raise my hand if you won't. Those of us in the room who might be tempted to sexual immorality, who can't be celibate. Marriage is God's gift to you. Yay, God. I'm saying that, that is God's gift. And in the end, it should not be viewed as anything other than God's gift. It shouldn't be looked down upon. It shouldn't be undervalued. It shouldn't be devalued. In fact, it's a gift. And God gives marriage as a gift to those who are tempted to sexual immorality. Now, here, Paul is showing that while some of the Corinthians believe that sex should be avoided, it's actually good that each man should have his own wife and each wife should have her own husband. And we see here details of God's design for marriage, right? It's a union between a man and a woman. It's an intimate bond in which God makes one flesh of two people. It's a union that is to be marked by faithfulness. So God is actually showing us what marriage looks like even in this discussion about whether one should marry at all. 
God's design for marriage also includes the call to sacrifice, giving oneself for another. We see that in verse 3 when he says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Oh, y'all are about to run from the building. I can just feel it. I can just feel I'm about to get a lot of this and booking it to the parking lot. This means that there is a faithfulness that exists within a marriage relationship that husbands should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That giving is a sacrifice and it's giving oneself for another. So within marriage, there's this mutual sacrificing where both the husband and their wife view their bodies as belonging to the other. Can I help you? This is radically countercultural now, and it was radically countercultural when Paul was writing it in the first century. It is radical because it's interesting to consider that Paul is writing that husbands and wives should sacrifice for each other in a culture that back then was so male dominated that women had very little rights of their own. You see how impressive it is that Paul is actually saying that both the husband and the wife have rights. And the role of a husband and wife is to self-sacrifice for the other. And so marriage is a picture of faithfulness. It's a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of giving. And it's a gift of God. As such, Paul says in verse 5, Right, he goes on to say in verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Right, That's talking about the two have become one flesh. It's not about your authority over your own body anymore. You have, you're sacrificing yourself. You're giving yourself for the betterment of another person, for the good of someone else. He says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That self-sacrifice, it's not about me. Marriage is not about my selfish desires and what I want to get out of it. Because that's what goes wrong when marriage becomes a selfish when it becomes selfish, then all it does is lead us to all types of sin and brokenness. Paul says in verse 5 that husbands and wives are not to deprive each other sexually. Sex within marriage is not something to be withheld intentionally in most circumstances. See, this is how we as human beings operate. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but we as human beings like to uh, manipulate each other. And one of the ways that husbands and wives can manipulate each other is by sex, withholding. Well, I'll let you see it my way. How about I just not um, have sex with you until you respond to what I want? I, that we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to manipulate. And God knows us that we will use many of God's great gifts to us as intentional manipulation of another person. I know none of you have ever had to worry about this, but in some people's lives, this happens. Sex within marriage is not something to be withheld intentionally in most circumstances. There is one exception that Paul lists here. He says there is a particular exception where spouses could abstain from sex in marriage, but even here, God provides the design, right? He says in verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again. So God says that if you're ever going to abstain purposefully from sex in a marriage, it would be by mutual agreement. Both agree. And it would be for a limited time. Wouldn't be forever or a long time. 
And they were to vote, and it was for the purpose of devoting oneself to prayer to God, not manipulating until someone uh, did, a, did something you wanted them to. But there was a, a God-intended design to marriage, a God-intended design to sex within a marriage, and that spouses reflect or demonstrate self-sacrificing love for another person, faithful love towards another person. You get what I'm getting at? And this is a gift of God to those who would struggle with sexual temptation. Be married. If you cannot control yourself, be married. This is a gift of God to us. Sex was never meant by God to be used as a negotiating tactic or, a, or to manipulate another person. And that's because marriage, and particularly sex in marriage, are gifts of God to those who are tempted. The Bible doesn't point to sex as simply a reproductive exercise either. Here Paul shows sex to be a regular, consistent part of a healthy marriage. It's part of remaining holy. Because he says, and, and come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So ultimately, sex within marriage is for the purpose of pleasing God because sex within marriage is how God keeps us holy as people who might struggle with temptation to sexual morality. This is how God keeps us holy, is by giving us this gift of marriage. Does that make sense so far? Are you totally uncomfortable? Would you rather me just talk about, you know, butterflies and rainbows? Yes. <laughs> All right, Mason, listen up to this next one, because this is about those who are single. All right. Someday, boy, someday you will know. But you see what I'm getting at? The, the, the Corinthian church, some of those in the church in Corinth were saying that, this, that sex is something evil or it's something that should not be approached. It's not something that you should have. And marriage is something that maybe should be avoided. And what Paul is showing them is that God has been gracious in giving gifts of both marriage and sex, but they're to be used within the purposes he has for them, and it's for our good, right? It's for our good, for our holiness. So if you're married, sex should be a regular, consistent part of your marriage. And don't withhold for manipulative reasons. Don't use it as a negotiating tactic because God has given it for you as a gift for your holiness and for the joy of your spouse. Now, verse 6, just in case all the unmarried and widows in the room say, well, what about us? I'm thankful that Paul includes that here. Because just so you know, if you're unmarried or you're a widow, it's not as if you are a second-class citizen. It's not as if you are lacking in some joy that you're, you're not going to ever have again. But in the end, what God has shown is that whether you are married or single, or unmarried, that God is still about your ultimate fulfillment and joy in both. So he says this in verse 6, after I turn the page. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of, uh, one, of one kind and one of another. So in discussions about biblical view of sex within marriage, the unmarried and the widows might think that they are missing out or incomplete in some way. And God says, in fact, that you are part of this discussion. Because then Paul says he gives a concession. That's permission. This is not a command. He's not saying you have to do this, but it is something that is permitted. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Well, what was Paul at this time? 
Well, we know Paul was not married at this time. Right? We know that from later on. He's going to tell us later on in this letter that, in fact, he's single. He tells us just a few verses from now. And so, Paul, if, if, if being married was required for you to have ultimate fulfillment, then Paul would say, well, I guess I'm not ultimately fulfilled then. I guess Christ isn't enough for me. But he doesn't say that. In fact, he says, I wish you were as I am. He says, I wish you were single like me. I wish you were unmarried. He didn't see himself lacking anything or not being able to find fulfillment. But instead, he says, each has his own gift from God. So marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. Both are gifts from God. And neither one of you is missing out on fulfillment if you don't have one or the other. Because marriage and singleness are not your, where you find primary satisfaction. And I want to show you that from here. Both marriage and singleness are designed, are not designed to be the focus of your ultimate satisfaction. Our identity is not ultimately in being married or single or whether we're sexually active or not. Our ultimate fulfillment is found in Christ and both marriage and singleness point us to that truth, which, by the way, culture does not agree with. Society does not agree with this statement. Society does not believe that you can have any type of ultimate fulfillment unless you are sexually active in some way. You are told that is what will bring you ultimate joy, and so you must find it. And whatever you have is not enough. You need to find more. And here, Paul is telling us our ultimate identity is not in whether or not we're married or single. It's in Jesus. And in either state, whether you're married or unmarried, you can find ultimate fulfillment if you have Christ. Because he's enough. But what does this mean for you if you're unmarried or widowed? Can satisfaction be found in celibacy? Is that possible? I want to share something with you. This is from a gentleman named Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is a pastor of a church in Mainhead, Great Britain. He is a speaker for Rave Zacharias Ministries. Anybody ever heard of Rave Zacharias? Apologist. So he speaks about the truth of the gospel. He speaks about the truth of the word of God. He, he's an apologist. He defends the faith. Sam Alberry, pastor, speaker, theologian, and also one who has been very open about the fact that he battles temptation to same-sex attraction. This is a godly man. He loves Jesus with all his heart. And he has been very open about the fact that he struggles with temptation to sexual immorality. And he has his whole life. So what about him? He's not married. He is not sexually active, right? Because he believes that is sinning against God and his design for marriage and sex. Can he find fulfillment? What is he to do? Because he's being told by culture you cannot find fulfillment unless you act upon your desires. So I want to share something that he said. To all the unmarried and widows in the room, I think this might bring some help. 
He says, are those of us who are celibate wasting our sexuality by not giving expression to our sexual desires? It means singleness, like marriage, has a unique way of testifying to the gospel of grace. Jesus said there will be no marriage in the new creation. In that respect, we'll be like the angels, neither marrying nor being given in marriage. I'm sorry, honey, but you will not be married to me in heaven. I know that breaks your heart. I know that you cry yourself to sleep every night knowing that. But we will not be married in heaven to each other, right? Matthew 22, verse 30. But Sam goes on to say, we will have the reality. We will no longer need the signpost. By foregoing marriage now, singleness is a way of both anticipating this reality and testifying to its goodness. It's a way of saying this future reality is so certain that we can live according to it now. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. It's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is. This doesn't mean our sexual feelings are redundant, dangling unfulfilled like the equivalent of an appendix. The consummation of our sexual feelings long for can, if we let them, point us to a greater consummation to come. They remind us that we, what we forego on a, tempor, a temporal plane now, we will enjoy in fullness in the new creation for eternity. Sexual unfulfillment itself becomes a means of deepening our sense of the fuller, deeper satisfaction we await in Jesus. It helps us to hunger more for him. We skip the appetizer, but we, wait, we await the entree. I love that line. If you're, if you're unmarried or you're a widow, you're not missing out. You can find fulfillment in being celibate. You can find fulfillment by being holy before God and not being sexually active outside of marriage. You can find it, and the way Sam Alberry refers to it, it's skipping the appetizer and you're awaiting the entree. You don't need, one day we will not need the signpost. We will not need the shadow. One day we will have Jesus, and he will be enough. And as we remain holy, even in unmarried or singleness or as a widow, you're showing that Jesus is more precious to you than anything else this life could offer. He goes on to say, celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it's for, which is to point us to God's love for us in Christ. I love that. Because we're told by a world that we must fulfill all of our desires if we're ever going to be happy. And here, Sam Albury, one who says he can't fulfill his, says it's actually him awaiting the ultimate joy and consummation he will have with God. That one day he'll be with Jesus, not lacking anything. And all that he's given up in this life, in holiness to God, is just pointing a lost and dark world to the fact that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So both marriage and singleness are gifts of God that point us to ultimate satisfaction in Christ when we're in union with him. Now, just a few issues for the married folks that Paul wants to address because what ends up happening is the gospel infuses into broken relationships, doesn't it? How many of you, when you were saved, were perfectly well off? Everything was fine, no problems, no struggles, all your relationships were, were perfect. Right, because if anyone said me, that would, you'd be a liar. 
All of us have brokenness. All of us have, when we come to Christ, not everything is solved immediately. In fact, coming to Christ can open up a whole bunch of new problems that you didn't know were there until Christ showed up. And in verse 10 through 16, Paul addresses some of these, and I want to hit them very quickly. He says in verse 10, to the married, so now he's moved on, he, the, his, he's shown to, the, to those who are unmarried or widows that there is still satisfaction, ultimately fulfillment in Christ, that, that sexual desires can, can be withstood in, in such a way and unfulfilled in such a way as to show that Christ is ultimate joy and ultimate fulfillment. And now he turns his eyes back to the married and he says in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. <coughs> Paul turns his attention and calls them to faithfulness in the midst of marriage. And Paul calls them to faithfulness in marriage in the midst of the lure to leave. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 5. God says marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his people. And in verse 10, Paul is addressing a married couple where both are Christians. And what he's calling them to do, actually what he says the Lord is calling them to do, is to not separate from each other. We live in a society and in a time when we will flee at the moment there is any disappointment whatsoever. And I believe that this has been... Uh, precipitated many times by the fact that we, we put out this idea of, of your soulmate or the perfect one for you. Can I help you? I don't believe there is such a thing. I love Jody. She's, she's wonderful. But we ain't perfect. And she isn't perfect. And I'm definitely not perfect. And so it ain't about soulmate. Me and Jody got married because we knew each other. We lived in the same city. Uh, went to school together. And she said yes. Those were, those were you know what I mean? Like the, those, were the, those were the requirements. Could Jody be happy with another husband? I mean, not right now. <laughs> That's, that, that, ship, that ship has sailed, at least for the time being. But let's say Jody and I had never met. Let's say I lived in England. And she met some other strapping Joe over here. Could she have been happy? Of course she could have. Because I'm not her soulmate. We're, it's not as if I was the one person in all of the created world who could make her happy. God has a design for joy, and she could be happy with someone else. Not now. But had, had I not been born or something like that. But we perpetuate this idea that I've got to find the one. And what it does is it disillusions us when we get married and we find out they're not the perfect person we thought. And what ends up happening is the lure to leave becomes prominent. Because the minute they don't meet all of your expectations is the minute you start wondering, did I make a mistake? Is this the wrong one? Now, I know none of you have ever thought that, but it does lead to struggle. You know what? It ain't about perfect people. It ain't about perfect compatibility, easy for me to say. It's about two sinners loving each other. Not because they're perfect, but specifically because they're not perfect. And it's dealing with all their junk and all their weirdness. And in that, you're actually displaying what? Faithfulness to God. Because guess what God endures with us? A lot of unfaithfulness and brokenness. 
So when we're faithful to each other as spouses, or when we're faithful in our relationships, what we're doing is we're saying, God is this way. This is what Jesus looks like. The reason Jody hasn't run out by now after how many years have we been married? Oh my goodness, almost 20. The reason Jody hasn't run out by now is simply because she's, she's been bearing with my weaknesses, my failures, my faults. And in the opposite way, yes. And in that, what, what I'm trying to display to the world is that I want to relate to, to Jody like, like Jesus relates to Christians, which is he doesn't run. Jesus isn't unfaithful. He doesn't flee. Jesus sacrificed himself. I should sacrifice myself for her. And in the, right? But she does some weird stuff, right? She's going to do some stuff that drives me crazy, and I'm going to be like, well, maybe there's someone out there who won't do these crazy things, right? Maybe, maybe there's someone out there who doesn't have this much love for a cat that should not be natural, right? Maybe, no, no, I don't do that, right? Because it's, because Christ loved me, and so I want to love her in the same way. And then she loves me in, res, in response, right? And, and she submits the way we submit to Christ's lordship, not as a slave, but, but, but as someone who loves someone so much that they're willing to, to walk alongside them. And so, but the problem we have as a culture is we, we're too easily ready to walk away because it's about selfishness. It's about what can I get out of this person, and if they don't give me what I want, then I'm out of here. Marriage is supposed to be the opposite picture. It's supposed to be that countercultural salt in the midst of decay, light in the midst of darkness. And Paul says you shouldn't separate, and if you do separate, you better get back together with your spouse. Because you're to be faithful to them. Now, I know there's a lot of issues we're not tackling at this moment. This is not meant to be a full treaty on, on, on divorce or that issue. But I am saying we are to model faithfulness in our relationships, especially between a husband and a wife. Again, these are radical words considering the male-dominated culture that, that Paul's writing within. Because the equality that God gives husbands and wives is nothing less than amazing. And let's be honest, sin so easily entangles within marriage, there seems to be no greater entanglement than the lure to, to turn and to walk out. And that lure, I believe, is the product of a faulty view of marriage. As sinners, we can erroneously have a self-serving view of marriage. We start out with a view that it's our soulmate, to, and that inevitably leads to pursuit of selfish interest, to use people to get what we want, and they don't meet our expectations, we, we walk away. But God calls the married to steadfast love for each other. Now, notice what he says in verse 12 and 13. Paul speaks of marriage in which one spouse has come to trust in Christ. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Notice how Paul is particular to say who's, who's talking here. Now he says, this is my, not, not that I'm contrary to the Lord, but this is me talking, he says. To the rest I say, not I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. So here we see what happens when Christ shows up in a marriage and saves one of the spouses. Because now the question is, do I stay with this unbeliever? Am I, do I, am I out of this? Is this over? And by the way, this is glorious when God rescues one spouse of a family and you start to see Christ infused into a home 
but at least it's some messy stuff because what do you do now? If, if, you're, if you're a wife and you've been saved but your husband is, is not saved yet, do you walk out, call it, call it a good try? Time to move on? No, here actually Paul says that if, if the other spouse is willing to remain, then they should stay. Paul speaks that we should remain faithful, continue to show steadfast love. And in a culture where we are quick to cut and run, this type of faithfulness will stand out. And God actually says that an unbelieving wife is made holy by her believing husband. And the opposite is true. That's weird. What does that mean, made holy? Well, it, I don't believe it means that they are automatically saved. That if one spouse gets saved, then just by merely being in the same aura as the Christian, that they will come to know Christ. But I, what I think it means is that when one person gets saved, they should stay with their unbelieving spouse because then Christian influence has come into the home, the Spirit of God is working, and who knows if God might not save the other spouse. But what's the basis for it? Faithfulness, steadfast love, not cutting and running when it gets tough, but continuing to show the faithfulness of Christ to us. Do you get what I'm saying? Good, because you said yes, I'll close. What do we walk away with, right? Paul has just given us all these things, which if we were to handle it in a slower fashion, we probably would have just taken like seven chunks and done seven different sermons, but we did it all in one. So what do we walk away with? Number one, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It's not a small deal. Marriage is a, it is the biggest picture God gives of how he relates to us. Which, by the way, on Wednesdays, we're going to start studying Hosea, which is about the marriage picture and what to do in the midst of unfaithfulness. You might want to show up to Wednesday, 1030 or 7. I give you options. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Number two, both marriage and singleness are gifts of God. If you're unmarried, if you're a widow, if you can remain celibate, that's a good thing. That's a gift of God. If you can't, get a wife or a husband. Get married. It's God's gift. Because what God desires is our holiness. But both marriage and singleness are gifts of God. If you're single, if you're unmarried, or you're a widow, it doesn't mean you're deficient. And it doesn't mean you can't find ultimate fulfillment in Christ. In fact, you can. It's a gift of God. Number three, sin is seen in idolizing marriage or sexual fulfillment above all else. You want to know what sin is? Elevating God's good gift of marriage and sex up to a primary level. They're not meant for our ultimate fulfillment. They're not meant for our ultimate identity. Jesus is. And so sin creeps in when we try to elevate sex or marriage above God and hope to find joy there that we can't find in him. Number four, Christ was selfless and gave himself up for us. This is what we're to model in our relationships. Faithfulness, steadfast love, sacrificing. This is what God has given us, and they are beautiful gifts. Because the fact that Jody can remain married to me is unbelievable. It is only a testimony of God's loving faithfulness to me. That he loved me enough that even as unfaithful as I've been to him, he has still loved me. Number five, Christ is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. That's what, that's what blows my mind. 
is his amazing faithfulness. And then finally, number six, find ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone. You want ultimate satisfaction, you're not going to find it by any bed you're going to sleep in. You're not going to find it in any other human relationship. You want ultimate satisfaction? It's only in Christ. It's only in union with him. When we trust in Christ, we find ultimate joy. And God promises that while we may still struggle with sin now, and we may still struggle with broken relationships now, and while our wives might drive us crazy, or our husbands might drive us crazy, or we might feel lonely, or we might feel the lure to sexual immorality, in the end what God tells us is that even in the midst of all this brokenness, one day we will be with him perfectly. One day it will no longer be about the shadow pointing to Jesus. We will be with him finally and completely. We will be holy and perfect. No more sin. No more wandering desires. But instead, sin simply in loving worship of our true groom, Jesus Christ. And all we're doing in this life right now is pointing as many people as we can to the ultimate satisfaction that is found in Jesus alone. Honor him in your marriage. Honor him in your singleness. Show steadfast love and faithfulness and find your ultimate satisfaction in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, I am thankful that while we have walked through some difficult things, God, some things that are very challenging to me as a pastor, Lord, I pray that you will help us to walk away this morning with a wonderful picture of Jesus. Because God, all these gifts you've given us, marriage, singleness, sex, God, all of these gifts you've given us, they are for your glory, God. You do it so that we might find our worth in you and not in ourselves or in anything else. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to rightly see these gifts. God, that we would rightly glorify you in them. And, Lord, that you would help us to see Christ as our ultimate satisfaction. Lord, help us to see that you are the one who lived and died and rose again. And in you we find all we need. And, God, why we love these gifts you've given us. They are not you. Ultimately, Christ, we ask that you would be glorified as we love you more than these things. So God, help us to rightly handle our marriages. God, help us to not be uh, selfish. Help us to not manipulate people to get what we want. Help us to not use your good gifts against each other. But God, instead, help us to show faithfulness and steadfast love that in doing so, we would sacrifice for each other and demonstrate to a lost and dying world the sacrifice that you have made for us. Oh, Lord, you deserve nothing but everything from us. God, I pray that we will give you all of our hearts. God, that we might use our bodies for your glory. Help us, God, to find our joy and satisfaction in you. God, if any of us in this room are struggling with dissatisfaction, Lord, point us once again back to yourself. Show us that in you we have every spiritual blessing. God, in you we have everything we need. And I pray we'll rightly handle these things you've given us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will once again show us your greatness. May we worship you, praise you, give you all honor and glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.